Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, demilitarizing police forces. Our guest is Allison Cole, who is a former researcher and an activist living in Portland, Oregon. She is working with a coalition of community organizations to demilitarize their local law enforcement agencies. Allison Cole, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for working on this. Uh, I want to give people a, a web link, uh, worldbeyondwar.org slash policing. Uh, you find resources there on demilitarizing police forces. And right at the top, the uh, the information about Portland and the petition that we'll be talking about related to Portland. What's, what's happened in, in Portland, Allison? How did this develop? How did you get involved in this effort? Sure. So I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard about what's happened in Portland this year regarding the Black Lives Matter movement and the subsequent protests in our city. The response in Portland was really severe. Our um, local police bureau and our county sheriff, in addition to the state police, had a very severe and violent response to peaceful protests because those protests were against the police. There's also a strong culture of white supremacy in our police forces here. And so you can imagine how unpopular a Black Lives Matter movement was with many people on the force. Um, Then I heard about what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, and your efforts to demilitarize the police in your city. And so I reached out to you and I said, we need your help. (laughs) How can we do this for Portland? And it seems like you're you're hard at work uh, doing it. Uh, it's it's a little bit out of the out of the media now compared to some months back. But moving these these government bureaucracies is is a little slower than the news cycle, isn't it? It's a lot slower, and I anticipated that getting into it. I would have loved to have the swift success that you all saw in Charlottesville. Portland's policing problems are deeply embedded in a lot of multiple forms of bureaucracy. Not only do we have a city government and a county commission that oversees our local law enforcement, but we have a police union that's worked for decades to really take power away from our city in terms of oversight of the police. So what the problem we have in Portland is that the authorities that should have oversight and ordinance and rulemaking structure over our law enforcement agencies don't actually have that much power because it's been slowly eroded over the years through union contracts. Union contracts? Yes. How so? So this is just for our police bureau. Um, Our county sheriff has a different um, bargaining structure for its workers. But in the city of Portland, the police have the union. It's called the Portland Police Association. And Normally, when we think of unions, we think of workers' rights and equitable working conditions, fair wages, good labor practices. But the Portland Police Association, which is their union, has actually really their sole purpose has been to take away authority and oversight jurisdiction from the city and just place it among themselves. It allows them to obfuscate a lot of the uh, practices and internal policies that they have, and it prevents them from being accountable to our community. 
most of us uh, generally support the right to organize unions and the, and condemn the restrictions on organizing unions in the United States. Uh, it ha but it seems you have to take on uh, the power of unions here. Who do you who do you have to win over to demilitarize uh, policing in Portland? Well, one good thing just happened is that the voters in Portland passed um, by eighty percent. Um, a new oversight advisory council that actually takes back some of that power and places it in the hands of the community in terms of policing oversight. It gives this commission more authority than past oversight bodies previously had to um, request and receive information from police, but also to enact discipline. Um, I also just want to say that I'm very pro-union and very pro-workers of rights. And what I've witnessed here as a community member in Portland is a subversion of the union model for the Portland police in which they've actually just essentially formed kind of a gang. Um, these police officers are essentially protecting their right to terrorize community members, and that's ultimately the problem. Um, I would never pick a fight with any other union in the world, <laughs> nor, nor debate their rights. <laughs> Of course. One thing that you've you've done is put together a, a petition uh, with what you want to see done, and people uh, can can read it if they go to worldbeyondwar.org/policing, uh, and and people in the Portland area can and should sign it. Um, what a, what are the list of of demands there? Sure. So our list of demands are based off of um, the demands that were built for Charlottesville, and we felt that those were really broad and coherent. Our main ask is that we end all military-style training for our local police, whether that's through um, in-house training or with private third-party militias. We'd like to end the transfer of weapons from the federal government to the local law enforcement agencies, whether that's through the 1033 program or Department of Homeland Security grants. We also want our local law enforcement agencies to ban the purchase of all crowd control weapons, so that's chemical weapons, less lethal munitions, smoke grenades, flashbangs, LRAD. Uh, we'd also like to see them get rid of um, any automatic and high-caliber semi-automatic weapons. We're also looking into um, hiring practices of veterans. Hiring practice of veterans is a really sacred institution in, uh, in and across our whole country and, and in all forms of business. But what the data show is that police, and within police forces, you have a disproportionate number of military veterans. So compared to the average population, there's a huge amount of people with military experience in the police forces. And what we've seen is that law enforcement agencies practice a very strong preference for hiring military veterans. The problem that brings with it is that if you're trying to demilitarize your local police, but the majority of police officers working for your community have military experience, then you, then you can't complete the entire vision of demilitarization. Um, it's not to keep veterans off forces completely, but it's to end the hiring practices that strategically seek out those individuals with that experience. And a lot of the problem you referred to earlier with the militarized policing in Portland actually came from outside Portland. So your your petition also addresses uh, state and federal forces, right? 
Yeah, so we don't want any cooperation with state and federal forces and also no tolerization if those forces come into the city. So our local police would have to enforce new rules that ban crowd control munitions and certain types of military tactics. So that, say, if the federal federal agencies did invade <laughs> Portland again, our police would be able to say, sorry, you're not allowed to do these types of activities in our city. And and finally, you have an item in there on the disposal of existing stockpiles of war weapons, right? Yeah, so we've made a demand that we would like all existing stockpiles of military-style weapons and equipment to be disposed of environmentally safe. We do not want these weapons to be sold to other communities. We want them to be dismantled and disposed of safely. Uh, sounds like an excellent uh platform uh, program to to be promoting. We're speaking with Allison Cole, who's working with a coalition of groups and individuals in Portland, Oregon, on demilitarizing police. You can find information at worldbeyondwar.org slash policing. Uh, how has it been going, Allison, in terms of getting organizations and individuals on board? What sort of a, of a coalition of allies have you been able to put together? There's been overwhelming support for this in Portland. It's been a really heartwarming experience for me as somebody who's kind of the administrator for this movement. My role has been to gather support, and we've formed a broad coalition of Black Lives Matter justice organizations to environmental organizations to general community organizations that in the past haven't weighed in on policing at all. There's a lot of intersectionality of the effects of policing in Portland, and I think what we're seeing is a lot of community members coming out of the woodwork, so to speak, to say that militarized policing is having a really harmful impact on the people that they serve. How about uh, major media outlets in Portland? How uh, how receptive are they to this uh, sort of agenda? You know, I don't know if this has gotten into the mainstream media in Portland yet. We've been a little bit more directed with our efforts to bring our discussion straight to the people who hold power and authority over making these changes. So our big focus right now has been holding conversations one-on-one with all of our city councilors and our county commissioners. Uh, We've also even engaged some law enforcement officers already because there is a chance we may be able to go into direct negotiations with those organizations to seek demilitarization rather than having to do it punitively through ordinances. I don't know if we'll see that kind of luck. I really don't. But if we can try it, and if for some reason we're successful in just doing it through direct negotiation rather than having to write ordinances and laws. So, so by direct negotiations, I mean getting the police to look at the data to agree and to disband all of their paramilitary units and get rid of these types of weapons. That could be a huge model for other communities around the country to move forward in, in a very positive direction towards demilitarization. If the police agree in the absence of any resolutions or ordinances uh, to do what you want, uh, isn't there still an advantage in getting the local government to put it in writing so that it can't be reversed next month or next year or next decade? Absolutely. I mean, that would have to happen no matter what. The idea is to see if we can engage our police forces into agreeing to this in the first place, other rather than having to battle them in court with lawsuits after these ordinances are written. 
The idea is to prevent endless lawsuits um, and to make this a positive transition rather than a war. Well, I, I, you know the individuals involved. Uh, I do not. Uh, but in my experience, it never hurts to, to be in the media. Uh, and my city council members, uh, you know, will occasionally listen to me directly. Uh, but they seem, as a general rule, to listen much more to something I've said to a TV camera or, or a, a local newspaper. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess I've been a little bit shy of the spotlight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you have some friends who aren't. Uh, they're not hard to find. Um, so maybe something for, for down the road. Um, have, have you had any, any troubles organizing people around this? I mean, I know that, uh, that support for, uh, for sort of de-escalation training uh, as opposed to uh, banning militarized training uh, runs uh, up against the agenda of defunding the police entirely, right? Right. There's been a lot of support for demilitarization because it makes a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of talk about de-escalation training, but the problem with that training is that it's a little bit of a myth, to be honest. And if you have your law enforcement agencies still training their police officers and sheriff's deputies with military tactics. When those officers go into communities to perform arrests, they're going to rely on that military training, not on that de-escalation training because of a basic fear response. So as long as you have your law enforcement agencies still providing military-style training and weapons to their officers, you're going to see those tactics come out as a first response. There's no reason to push for de-escalation training if you're still doing these military-style training. Demilitarization is one part of the defund, the larger defund movement. And demilitarization for abolitionists is one step closer towards abolition. It's a chip at the block. And I think, especially in Portland, everyone is willing to do whatever they can from whatever angle to achieve the mission of keeping our community safe from police violence. Diversity of tactics is really welcome and respected in Portland. And so that's been a wonderful part of living here and working on this mission. In, in Charlottesville, you know, we, we claimed something of a success, but all we passed was uh, a, the ban on militarized training, wherever it came from, U.S. government, foreign government, uh, private company, etc., and a ban on getting weaponry from the U.S. military. Uh, we failed to ban getting outrageous war weaponry uh, from any other source, uh, and we failed to... Uh, of course, we failed to completely defund or even partially defund uh, the police uh, and move resources elsewhere. Uh, so we had plenty of complaints that there was a lot more work to be done. Uh, I think you've got uh, you've got a bigger uh, uh, agenda that you're trying to achieve in Portland. Do you expect uh, you'll be able to get it all or or part of it? What do you what do you think it's it's looking like in the near future? The hiring of veterans is going to be our trickiest part of this because it's such a sacred institution. And I understand why it's a sacred institution for a lot of Americans. Um, but I really think that we're going to get everything else because there's no data that supports the use of 
paramilitary units or military-style weapons in communities. There's no data that say these weapons and these skills make communities safer. All of the data, all of the empirical research that's been done says not only do military weapons and military tactics and policing lead to more civilian fatalities, but they also do not make police officers safer. They expose them to more assaults and potentially even more deaths on their side. So I can't see any public policy official look at this data and want to keep militarized policing as an option for their law enforcement agencies, especially after what we saw this summer is that our law enforcement agencies cannot practice safe execution of these tools and of these tactics. We have hundreds of Portlanders that have ended up in the hospital with injuries, thousands more who have been poisoned with toxic gases, and our rivers, which are, we have a beautiful river that runs right through the center of our city. A, a good majority of protests took place right near the edge of the river. And so we have huge amounts of these toxic chemicals that have gone down our storm drains, and they're showing up in environmental impact studies as pollutants and fish. So there's a lot of reasons why our city should feel compelled to ban the use of these weapons and tactics. And there's no reason why they should feel compelled to keep them. There's no data that support it. Allison Cole, you've produced a, a document uh, compiling all sorts of research on the, the effects of militarizing police uh, that uh, we've posted as a PDF at, at worldbeyondwar.org slash policing that ought to be of great help to people who want to try taking this on in their city or county or state or province uh, around the world. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about what you found in your research? Yeah, absolutely. I realized that we were going to need a lot of data to back up our mission because that's what a lot of our elected officials are going to want to see to inform their decisions about demilitarization. So what I did is I went through all of the publicly available research on police militarization. So this is stuff anyone could find on the Internet. None of it is protected access. It's not exclusive. So I went through just everything that was publicly available. I read a lot of papers, a lot of research studies. These are all studies coming out of people working as researchers at universities. Um, a lot of longtime sociological researchers, some PhD candidates. Most of the research that I read is empirical studies. So people looking at SWAT team deployment and then taking all of that data and looking at civilian casualties when those SWAT teams were deployed and then comparing that against times when the police didn't uh, you know, use that SWAT team unit as their primary tactic and comparing that against civilian deaths. And what they found was that if you deploy a SWAT team, people are more likely to die. And what they found is that SWAT teams are 50% more likely to target black communities than white communities, even controlling for population in those areas. A lot of researchers are also looking into the 1033 program. The reason why that's a big topic of research is because a lot of data is available on the 1033 program. In the case of SWAT team researchers, there's only tiny bits of data that are available on SWAT team deployment because most cities, counties, and states don't require law enforcement agencies to track that information. So it just doesn't exist. 
But the 1033 program keeps a large database of information available about those weapons transfers. And what many researchers found when they compared the type and amount of equipment transferred into police departments, what they found is that civilian fatalities went up. And when I say civilian fatalities, I mean that's police killing. So if your community is taking weapons from the 1033 program, you are significantly more likely to see people in your community being killed by the police. And it, it's a direct correlation. If your police are engaging in military tactics and using high-caliber rifles and tear gas, you know, and, and using military tactics to surround your home in a drug raid, if you are inside, you're more likely to be killed. That it's, it's A to B. So it's a causal relationship. And what they're finding is that in communities where those law enforcement agencies are not participating in these weapons transfer programs or don't have paramilitary units, they're not seeing nearly as many people die. Uh, predictable but important to document uh, and and hopefully a powerful tool in lobbying these local governments. I think the bill in Congress now to fund the military uh, is likely to put some restrictions on certain outrageous weapons, bayonets and things in that in that program of giving federal weapons to local police and count that as reform. I, I, I would hope and would think it shouldn't discourage local governments from outlawing the use of, of weapons from the U.S. military or anywhere else that are that are weapons of war. Uh, Allison, you have involved in your effort some, some individuals uh, whose loved ones, uh, family and friends, have been uh, injured or killed by these SWAT raids and this, this militarized policing, right? Yeah, there's an organization of, of people up here in the Pacific Northwest um, called the Pacific Northwest Family Circle, and they're the loved ones of people who have been killed by police. And are those and, stories helpful in in changing people's minds? I can't see how they couldn't be, but it's really hard to tell them, and it's really hard. And it's really hard to ask these people to keep telling their story. Um, what a lot of these families have gone through is not only losing their loved one, but also receiving no justice. Um, not a single officer who killed one of their family members has ever been convicted of a crime. Incredible. Um, what what do you what do you recommend people do to get working on this in in other parts of the world? And what can people do in particular uh, to help in Portland, who are in the Portland area or know people who who live in Oregon? Absolutely. So here in Portland, people can sign our petition and they can write to their local elected officials, their city councilors, their county commissioners, and even people at the state level. Talk to friends, ask them if they're aware that, you know, do you know Portland has a SWAT team called CERT? Do you know our county has a SWAT team? It's called the RRT, the Rapid Response Team. You know, did you know that our city received rifles from the federal government that are being sent back from the wars in the Middle East? Do you know one of those rifles was used to kill a young black man in Portland just a few years ago? You know, so those conversations are key here in Portland. It's, it's talking to your friends and then writing to the people that represent you. And I think in other cities and towns in the United States, it's the same. Talk in your community, call up your local elected officials and ask them if they're aware of these practices in their town and city. Contact your local law enforcement agencies, do a Freedom of Information Act request, a FOIA. 
ask them for the information about their practices. And people can go to worldbeyondwar.org slash policing uh, and find a link to the Portland petition and sign it and share it and spread it around uh, and contact World Beyond War to set up a similar petition uh, and campaign around it uh, in other parts of the United States or other countries. Um, in in Charlottesville, Allison, we, we have five city council members. We have local media outlets that are open to uh, covering our, our concerns to some extent. Uh, once we get three city council members who are concerned that, that some members of the public are upset, uh, we actually have government that's responsive to, to the public, as, as you hear about in you know, textbooks, as, you know, describing governments like the U.S. government, which obviously is not. Uh, responsive right. to the public. How, how is it typically in Portland? And, and particularly, how much does it cost to, to get elected to, to local office in Portland? Uh, how, how much is, is financial corruption a factor, if it is at all? You know, there's some really interesting things happening in Portland regarding elections. We have, I might botch the name of it, but we have a fair and accountable election system in Portland. Right now, it's optional. It's not mandatory, but I believe it will become mandatory soon. And what that does is it limits the amount of money an individual can contribute to a campaign. And it says that no businesses, corporations, or PACs are allowed to donate to your campaign. But there's a really cool facet of our fair and accountable election, open and accountable election. That's what it's called here. What it does is because that's likely to reduce the amount of money campaigns are traditionally allowed to see. There's a matching fund. So a chunk of our budget is put aside for this program. And if you are me, running for office and you enroll in the Open and Accountable Elections Program, you're only taking small donations from individuals, no one else. What it does is it matches those funds. So this year, um, one of our mayoral candidates participated in the program. Sarah Iannarone was her name, and so if you donated $25 to Sarah Iannarone, she would get a couple hundred dollars matched from the city fund for her election, and that financed her campaign. Um, This is something that was passed by voters quite a few years ago, and there was another measure tightening it up a little bit in in this current election. Um, However, our mayor, our current mayor, uh, who was re-elected not by a majority, but there are two other campaigns running against him in the, in the final election, um, he was not running an open and accountable election. He was taking huge amounts of money from private corporations and um, a lot of business interests that um, are not made up of Portlanders. Uh, these are large statewide and Pacific Northwest corporate interests. Um, he also broke a lot of campaign finance rules, and he also loaned, he's, he's a a timber heir and sits on a large fortune. He loaned his campaign a few hundred thousand dollars at one point because they were going broke. It's just, um, I think we're about to see some a real major um, evolution of campaigning in the Pacific Northwest, especially in Portland. And I think it's going in a good direction. 
Well, I hope so, and I hope it has an impact on this effort to demilitarize the police, because as you're talking, I increasingly can imagine someone uh, looking at the data and the research and failing to do the sensible thing uh, if, you know, if the elections uh, cost so much money that these sorts of reforms are, are needed. Um, we, we've been speaking with Allison Cole, who is part of a big coalition effort in Portland, Oregon, to demilitarize the local police. You can look at that effort and get involved in it and set up your own similar effort in your part of the world check out worldbeyondwar.org slash policing Allison Cole thank you very very much for everything you're doing and for coming on Talk Nation Radio thank you so much for having me it's a pleasure This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.